Still here, huh? Very good. So, in thinking about what might be most beneficial uh, for you tonight, or this afternoon, I had um, a lot of different possible topics come through. But the one my mind actually alighted on was um, talking about motivations for practice and expectations for practice and um, how those line up or stack up against what this practice actually is and does. And if you're willing, there's parts of this where I'd like some uh, sangha participation. Okay, so if you remember the first evening that we were here when we were doing the opening remarks, I made a few comments about motivation and trying to identify what your own particular motivation was for coming on this retreat. And I said, you know, if you have a a motivation that's clear and has some power to it, it can sometimes be something that you can touch into and can be an asset for you, a kind of fuel that you can use to continue on, to keep on keeping on. Remember that? (laughs) It was a long time ago. (laughs) Many mind states have come and gone since then. So I'm going to give you a list of things that are common Um, motivations or goals for people coming on retreat. Now, I'll read through the list first, and then I'd like to kind of have a popcorn-style vote among the sangha, if you recognize one or more of these that you could characterize as being yours. So just listen to them first. So the first one is stress reduction. Uh, professional development or application in some way. That's the second. Emotional relief or release. Grief. Uh, Figuring something out like a life or relational issue. Um, Wanting something more or better. Maybe you can't even say what that is. And uh, the last of these is cultivation of the heart-mind, bhavana. Okay, so in this particular democracy, you can vote more than once. (laughs) Well, hmm, I will refrain from the comment. Okay, so um, stress reduction Come on, be honest, come on. we got to be honest, right? There's not a right or a wrong here. Stress reduction, okay. Good, well represented. Um, Professional development or application. Okay, the pragmatics. All right. Um, Emotional relief or release. Uh, Grief. Figuring something out like life or a relational issue. All right. 
wanting something more or better, even if you don't know what it is. Well, you know, all right. Uh, Cultivation of heart-mind. Okay, bhavana is strongly represented. That's good. That was pretty well distributed, too. I mean, there, was a, there were a good number of people for each one of those. So this is appointing to a number of, of things. But one of them is people don't necessarily come on retreat because they're too happy. But we're hoping, right? We're hoping. So the Buddha says that uh, suffering ripens into one of two things. It either ripens into despair or it ripens into search, a looking for something that might help or might over, overcome the suffering, create new options. And that was certainly uh, true for the first retreat I ever did, which was probably uh, hmm, 1981, maybe. Yeah, I'm younger than I look. (laughs) No, wait. Um, All right, so at the time I was actually... um, working um, around issues of violence against women, right? So it was kind of in the early stages of there being anything in the, in the way of services or places. And, well, you know, the organizations that uh, were doing that kind of work didn't have any money and, you know, sometimes didn't have a lot of political support but had lots and lots of potential uh, women and children to shelter and work with. So, you know, it was this constant flow of people coming in in really bad shape followed by more more uh, women and children coming in in really bad shape with not enough resources and not um, enough places and not enough responsiveness from the larger culture. And you start, I started to get this deep understanding of how commonplace and permitted this was in our culture, that how much of it there actually was and how little social acknowledgement or recognition of this as being uh, any kind of problem that deserved any kind of response. I can remember once going to a county council meeting where I was trying to get funds to, uh, for a shelter. And, you know, I was, I was there trying to get them to an endorse a grant to uh, the law enforcement administration agency, which was, you know, funded the cops and the model projects and all that kind of stuff. And the theory was, what we were going for, is if they would only fund a shelter, then the cops wouldn't keep having to come back to the same address, which they hated to do because they didn't like to do that because it was too dangerous for them.
So, hmm, that's an interesting thing. It's too dangerous for them, but okay, there's... Um, so, so I was making this argument about why the county should buy off on this grant. I had one guy who was on the panel interrupt me. Uh, and he said, I just have one question for you. What are you going to get out of this? What job are you going to get? Now, as it so happened, I already had a job. It's, <laughs> uh, so, uh, yeah. And, but then I had somebody on the council who was uh, actually female, just to, go to show the ignorance can be evenly distributed in these circumstances. And she said to me, you're saying that this happens in like 10% of the households. I don't know anybody this is happening to, so that can't be true. So this isn't happening. I mean, this is like serious. This is serious. So, uh, a little bit of denial. But then the people who were there on the front lines who were actually, you know, working uh, with women and their kids are seeing beneath this facade of social denial and even tacit approval all of this stuff happening, right? So it was like a little little break through the ice of... Um, uh, conventional reality down into hell. So anyway, dukkha, dukkha, dukkha. So I had a friend who worked with me, and uh, she worked at the shelter. And she said, "You should, you should come with me. You should come to um, this retreat. They're having this retreat, and it's over a long weekend. It might have been this weekend, actually." Might have been Labor Day weekend. Maybe I'm having an anniversary. Yeah. Um, I said, you know, the, these two people are coming to town, and they're they're teachers, and they teach meditation, and they're going to be doing a retreat. She said they're going to be doing a death and dying retreat. I thought, oh Jesus, like, yeah, that'd be a vacation, all right? Death, death and dying retreat. She said, no, 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 no. They're they're really good. They're really good. You know you. You would be real. It'd be really good for us to go and do it. They're just amazing people. So this was uh, Stephen and Andrea Levine. So she talked me into it, and uh, so we went there for this weekend. And as you might uh, gather from what I've said about my circumstances, I, my mind was not. A happy mind. It was really pissed off, actually. There's a lot of anger. There's a lot of fire there. And um, so we come in, and it was really, I didn't really have a lot of expectations, but it was different from what I thought it was going to be. It was quite different from what I thought it was going to be. So it was like this combination of them working directly with um, individual people there, and there are, you know, people who had 
lost a dear one or some some of the people were in the process of dying themselves um, and you know they would have a dialogue with them about what was what was in their heart and then that was alternated with periods of instruction where they actually taught you uh, mindfulness meditation focusing on the breath you know working with the breath and um, and then they gave the set of walking instructions that I taught, told you about the other day, which I did not <coughs> care for, especially with that there's no you're not going anywhere there's not any point in doing this except to to do it and experience it mm. uh, not well received by this being. But there are, there are certain things about how, they, how the instructions for meditation were given that were really, really valuable. And for some reason, my mind was actually able to hear this instruction, this aspect of instruction. So they would talk about being embodied and feeling the, finding the body and feeling the body. And then they would talk about feeling the breath and being with the breath and staying with the breath. But then... They said, you know, if something else arises and becomes predominant, if something else actually happens and becomes the main thing that you're knowing, you should acknowledge it and, and, and turn to it and just include it in the meditation. And the, the guy that they had supporting the retreat who was helping with the instructions would model this in the instructions and he would, he would go... Anger, of course. Or sadness, of course. And of course, his of course was not well received by me in terms of his tone because it was a little too perky for my mood. But nevertheless, the matter-of-factness of it, the of-courseness of it, that told me something really important, and I really took that in, that it was a not illegitimate that I was sitting there feeling this anger, grief, frustration, despair, futility, desire for revenge, <laughs> uh, uh, you know, all these heavy emotions that would sometimes arise and be there. There was a way in which they framed it and packaged packaged the instructions, probably partly because it was a, a, a retreat that addressed this topic of death and dying and loss. That included it all and made it all part of the field of practice. And that was a very, very, very important learning for me. That whatever was arising in practice was not wrong. That it was just another thing that could be held within this uh, spacious, loving, kind awareness. That it was there and it was good that it was recognized. And that you didn't have to judge yourself for having it or you didn't have to try to displace it, or you didn't have to make yourself wrong or bad or anything like that, if it was there. So it was very skillful instruction. 
And obviously my mind was ready to hear it, even though it was filled with a lot of, uh, a lot of these strong um, reactions. Because I saw what that was. And the other thing that I saw from that first retreat, in the quality of the teachers, in who, who they were and how they were relating to people on the retreat in these uh, really difficult states, they had this quality of transparency. Um, it's almost like they were so open, they and their heart were so open, anything could come at them and go through them and not stick. And their balance was not disturbed. That there was some deep equanimity in these people. And my mind went, okay, I don't know, I don't get it all, I don't understand it all, I don't, I don't know how you, how you get that. But that's where I'm going. <laughs> because they could hold the suffering. They could hold the suffering by not holding the suffering. By not contracting around it, Right? So it was a really, really interesting learning for me. And it really set me on the path of practice, uh, which has continued. And um, my faith in the Buddha Dharma has only grown from there. So to get back to some of your hopes or motivations or desires for retreat and what you're learning here, how you're framing it for yourself or how you're summing up what you're getting out of it. You don't get anything out of it except wisdom, really. That's the main takeaway. I mean, there are many other gifts from this, but in terms of what is transformative for you, It really is about getting understanding which is deep enough that it overturns the misunderstandings and misapprehensions that we have about how to relate to our own experience. It's that, of course, coaching that's such an important part of the transformation of mind that training of the mind to to, to be able to hold presence and balance and inclusion and kindness and goodwill in relationship to anything that it's experiencing, whether it's on retreat or off retreat. So, you know, what we're doing here is not about manufacturing an ideal state that, you know, you will then be able to, to take home and have forever, And it's not about, at least in the immediate sense, of getting rid of anything. And it's not about fixing yourself. Fixing yourself. Aww. (laughs) Oh, wow. (laughs) Oh, no. (laughs) Oh, no. Can I have my money back, money back, money back? Can I have my money back, please, sir? Mm. So, 
So let's talk about how this this whole process of, of the mind liberating itself, becoming unentangled takes place through this process of meditation. And here I'm talking primarily about what is sometimes called mindfulness meditation, sometimes is called uh, Vipassana meditation, which is usually translated as insight meditation. Now this word insight is very interesting because insight is a word that we can hear on a lot of different levels, right? We could apply that to a lot of different things. So we might think of, you know, personal insight might be something like, you know, I thought I'd like to travel a lot, but then I realized that, you know, after I did a lot of traveling that really I would just, you know, rather rather be home with, you know, my own own bed and, you know, my own kitchen. Yeah, that's a personal insight, right? You know, my conditioning is such that this is the way I like it. Or there can be insights that are psychological, personal psychological insights. Um, so Bonnie talked about an insight that, that she had on, on retreat that was both psychological, but it was also a Dharma insight. But I'll talk about the psychological dimension first. Because she she mentioned that when she was watching her mind at one point, she realized that she, you know, had this uh, self view of self as victim that would would commonly come up. I hope it's okay. I'm saying this. You already told him. <laughs> I'm not leaking the news, am I? <laughs> okay. Um, that would commonly come up when she sat. You know, I just said I had the psychological insight. You know that I had an had an angry mind, an angry mind that you know when it came up against situations that it felt uh, uh, were was unjust or uh, and that I didn't have the power to remedy, it got really pissed pissed off. So you know psychological insights. Sometimes you'll have a psychological insight on retreat. You know it involves your family or your relationships or your personal history. It's like. You'll be sitting there and all of a sudden, you know, feeling some emotion or having some particular flight of thoughts and sometimes all on its own an insight will arise like, oh, oh my God, yeah, of course, of course I have that tendency. Now that my mother used to do the same thing, right? Or, yeah, of course it's like that, you know, this thing happened in childhood and then I can remember thinking that, you know, I was bad because you know, that happened to me or something, right? Psychological insights. And it's an interesting thing about these psychological insights that usually when they're, they arise on retreat, the most powerful and the most beneficial ones actually don't come when you're in there trying to fix yourself or kind of mine your subconscious for figuring out why you are the way you are or why somebody else is the way they are or why your relationship with somebody else is the way that it is. You know, I've been working on the rail. I'm going to figure this one out. Think it, 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 think it. 
not done yet. <laughs> yet, so I better think it, think it, think it, think it, think it some more. And can I have an amen from the church? Amen. <laughs> All right. Now, have you know, ever noticed that? Hmm. But the most useful ones actually come when we're not trying to figure it out. And they, it comes very often, almost like I, the image I have in my mind now is like a bubble being released from the, the depths of the subconscious where it like bloop and like opens like, oh, I get it. I get it. So how do those happen on retreat? When you follow the instructions. <laughs> So it's not the point, but it's uh, a gift of the process, a gift of the process, these kinds of learnings. So another type of uh, insight that arises, which is really the point of this from the perspective of Buddhist practice, is what's called liberative insight. Liberative insight. Hmm. What does that mean? It means the, the kind of shift in understanding that arises within the heart-mind after it has paid close and sustained attention to its immediate experience in a certain kind of way. And it starts to get how things work, how suffering is created, and how it can be released. So remember, long ago when you were here early, I said something like, you know, this is uh, immersive learning. This is an experiential immersive learning. It's like an intensive. So... How does the mind liberate itself? The Buddhist teaching says, through hearing the, the words of the Dhamma through someone who has some understanding themselves, and then practicing to make those insights your own. Your own. So this path isn't a take it on anybody's word peace and it's not a let's go to the teacher in darshan and catch the vibe and then merge with it all and it's not ingestion of a substance that's going to blow the doors off your narrow little contracted mind (laughs) which is too bad because those sound like it could be a lot less work But here we are, you know, kind of limping along with our dukkha, which is why we came on retreat in the first place. So your dukkha, in a certain kind of sense, is one of your biggest practice assets because it makes you undergo the search.
So let's talk about liberative insight and how this happens. How many of you kind of came into this through either the stress reduction or the secular mindfulness door? Put them up, put them up. Every vote counts, at least in this place. Okay, so... (laughs) Sorry, I told you I had that kind of attitude. Well, easily annoyed. So, okay, so the first steps, like with secular mindfulness and stress reduction, the mind is really being trained to come into connection with its experience in real time, right? Like, can you feel the body? Can you feel, you know, the breath? Can you connect with the emotion? So that's a connecting instruction. It's a basic coaching about how to deploy your our capacity for uh, attention and use awareness to connect in real time to what we're knowing. And there's coaching in there about the attitude of mind that's skillful to have when you're doing that, right? So you don't, you know, it's not about judging your experience, you know, it's about just recognizing it with kind awareness. And, you know, so those sound like familiar instructions that you've had. Something along those lines. All right. Anybody who can do that, anybody who has that capacity to follow those instructions and actually do those, and this this pains me to say this, but um, you're probably um, more developed than 90% of the human population. You know, as you go along this path and you start to to notice your own mind and what it does with ex- experience, how easily it disconnects from immediate experience, how it creates its own suffering, how difficult it is to stay with an actual grounded awareness of what's happening here and now. This has the capacity to be, on the one hand, dismaying because you're experiencing this as your own experience. But the other aspect of that can be profoundly shocking but can generate a huge amount of compassion because you start to realize, well, if my mind is like this, okay, and I'm trying, (laughs) right? Like I'm working at it and I've got some capacity to find my experience and be with my experience in this way and hold this thread. What does that mean about people who don't have that capacity, aren't trying, have never had these trainings or teachings? What it means for us as human beings is that we, they, are operating completely on the basis of automaticity. Wow. Well, that would explain a lot. So even this this first stage of practice, establishing mindfulness, coming to understand what it is, training the mind 
to be able to connect to an immediate experience in a wise way is like a, a huge thing. It's a big evolutionary step for us personally and as, as human beings as a group. So that all the secular proliferation of mindfulness trainings is a very, very good thing. And it's the introductory level. So it's really good, and there's a lot more that's there as a possibility for you and for humanity. So if we were going to look at the Buddhist path and look at, at the, how other things can open from that, as mindfulness it, it continues to be trained and it gets stronger and stronger within you, and you're given good instructions and you practice them, this mindfulness starts to notice specifics about things, particular aspects about things. And this is called investigation. So you could say investigation, it's dhammavikaya, it's usually translated as investigation of states is when mindfulness kind of looks a little more closely at what's going on in the immediate sense and starts to notice particular things. Like it might notice particular things like, well, okay, when, I, when anger is present, this is what it feels, this is what the feeling tone of it is in, in the mind. Oh, it's unpleasant. Or maybe it's pleasant if the mind is also feeling you know, righteous or superior or something. But let's say it's unpleasant. Let's say it's unpleasant. Anger is unpleasant. And then it starts to look at, well, what is it like in the body when anger is there? Well, it's, I'll give you my version. It's heat. It's hot. It's fiery. There's energy there. There's some restlessness in the body. There's tightness in, in the shoulders. There's kind of a a gripping of the hands. There's almost like an impulse of wanting, wanting to do something, an impulse to want to like get up out of the chair and do something. I don't know. <laughs> About what? I don't know. But it's, the impulse is there. And that's, that's what it feels like. And as, as I continue to notice or know those sensations, I start to notice them change. The sensations change, they move, they morph, they disappear, other things happen, a new kind of thought comes along, maybe then I notice, okay, this is sadness now, which is now another version of aversion, and this one's unpleasant, but now the body is, body is heavy, it's kind of curled in on itself. Now the, the, the stomach is kind of contracted, and maybe there's tears. And now maybe it's anger again, right? So in other words, you start to be able to follow this as a moment-to-moment process, noticing its specificity, how one thing uh, arises, one experience arises, stands, exhibits itself in a particular way, and then changes or is uh, um, covered over by another experience or passes away. So you start to see process. And when you start to see process... This is really where you're getting into what would be considered to be real insight meditation practice, where the wisdom piece starts to emerge and be recognized. 
So an example of this would be, say I'm sitting having a state of fiery anger, having a state of fiery anger, and then I, um, I notice it's actually unpleasant. Oh, it's unpleasant. So then it, I start to notice, oh, this is actually suffering. <laughs> this is actually suffering. So maybe then, instead of the system doubling down on, you know, fiery anger and rage, there arises within in the mind some compassion, some compassion for the difficulty this being is experiencing because of the arising of fiery anger. Or maybe you're sitting there and you're having fiery anger and you, you notice it's unpleasant, but then uh, a new series of thoughts start to arise about another situation that creates further fiery anger. But the mind has been through this loop a number of times, and instead of going for the ride and turning towards those thoughts and getting involved with them again, it recognizes, okay, this is proliferation of this particular suffering. Maybe I should actually see what I can do to heighten mindfulness in relationship to this thing now so it doesn't increase my suffering. Maybe now I should do something like, I don't know, do a compassion move, do something like this. And maybe I find spontaneously from some place in my uh, subconscious mind there arises a compassionate thought along the lines of, it's okay, baby cakes. (laughs) It's okay. It's all right. 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 So this is all, you know, a very concrete concrete way of talking about how we start to see how we create suffering and how it can be released, right? And a first step of this is starting to notice when we actually do experience suffering and to recognize, for instance, that these states of um, greed, aversion and delusion actually are suffering states. That's a huge clarification right there. To recognize that these actually are suffering states. Because often, if our mind is not trained, meaning it hasn't observed closely how these states function when they're active in the mind and are are dominating our experience, sometimes we don't actually know they're suffering. So consider, for instance, the path to addiction. There's a lot of paths, of course. But one example is, you know, there's distress there in the system, there's suffering in the system that's stronger than the the coping capacities that are present. And the teaching of the Buddha is along the lines of an untra- for an untrained mind, when it, r- when it runs into suffering or it runs into difficulty, the only thing that it knows to do 
is to reach for sense pleasure. To reach for something that it can, can use in an attempt to substitute for that experience of what's unpleasant and difficult. Right? That's kind of like the biological reaction. But we know, you know, there's a lot of stuff that you can reach for if you're experiencing difficulty or suffering that ain't going to help. Right? It does relieve in the immediate sense, but in the longer, longer term sense, you know, can actually enmesh us, us deeper in the suffering we're trying to escape. So if the mind recognizes, okay, I'm suffering, this is, this, is, this is difficult, this is unpleasant, I really don't like it, I don't want it, I, and sees, I want something else, I want to I do something, I want to do something else, I want to feel better, I want to get rid of this, and recognizes that as craving or wanting, it can find a way to relate to the arising of that state so that it doesn't get drug into an unwise reaction to its presence. Right? It can turn the, the, the power of mindfulness and compassion and investigation and all these other beautiful qualities of mind directly towards it and find something else to do in relationship to it. So, this is part of insight into how suffering is created and released. So it's very interesting because when you hear these teachings, you know, kind of in, in uh, you know, like classical Dharma talk or something, it can sound like, well, you know, there's the first noble truth and the second and the third, and this can seem very abstract. But when you're actually practicing Dharma and you're doing meditation... You're seeing the Dharma not through words, but you're seeing it experientially in what you are knowing immediately, moment to moment. And the instructions and the teachings are designed to point this out to you. What you're seeing, to help you connect with what you're seeing, to give you a framework for understanding it, so you can undertake your own investigation of how you get tripped up, and entangled, and suffer, and how you can start cutting the ropes. So the first part of the process is learning to recognize what's being experienced in the present moment, right? Like your basic mindfulness. What Right now, what are you experiencing? What are you experiencing? Then a next step is with sustained and wise attention, sustained, right? So as mindfulness strengthens, you're able to find that, that band of attention in more and more settings with, more, with a wider and wider range of your experience. So, you know, somebody was asking me this morning about why don't you teach it in a, in a, in a bus station, and, you know, part of what I said was, well, because for most people... Ideal circumstances would be like kind of quiet and nothing much else going on, allowing people to give their full attention because it's hard to sustain because the mind-wandering tendency 
or the tendency, conditioned tendency of mind to be absorbed into, you know, what are basically often deluded and suffering states is so strong. But figuring out what mindfulness is, what that band of attention is, then learning how to sustain that band of attention. And understanding the importance of compassion and metta in it. That is huge in practice. You know, uh, metta and compassion, these attitudinal trainings, you really need to read those or understand those as, as being part of the context of or permeating all, all of these other um, things that are being said in relationship to the Dharma and how to liberate the mind. Because the whole thing, if you understand that the trainings were offered in order to help the mind liberate itself from suffering, and that we come to practice because we are suffering in ways we might know and in ways we might not even recognize, you got to be kind. You know, you're not gonna you're not gonna drive yourself into understanding. This is more a process. Of, you know, this image of the of the lotus is used not at random. Does everybody know what a lotus is? Okay, do you know that the taproot of the lotus, you know, all plants have a root, the taproot of a lotus can be very long. It can go all the way into uh, uh, dark and swampy places at the bottom of a pond where there's mud and muck. You can't even really see what's going on there. And yet the top, at the surface of the water, is the opening of this flower that's used as an image of awakening of the heart-mind. So what do you think that image is about? I mean, they didn't pick like a rose. They didn't pick like a... You know, a columbine or daisy. It was picked for a reason because it says it's in learning how to actually transform what would otherwise be suffering into nourishment for your own awakening that you find liberation. And the Tibetan teachings have a lot of comments along these lines that that really emphasize that point. So this has to do with developing familiarity with your particular patterns of um, conditioned reactions which are suffering. Well, in order to do that, if you're going to where it hurts, you got to be kind. You got to be trustworthy <laughs> to yourself, right? You got to you got to be uh, uh, you're kind of your own doctor and your own patient at the same time. You got to be gentle, which is not to say limp or lacking in courage. But th- so this kindness piece is really important. So we learn to recognize what's being experienced in the present moment, 
with sustained and wise attention, better known as mindfulness, in order to find wise relationship with immediate experience. And this process nurtures what is onward leading and wholesome in us. Because mindfulness has this property of being a bit of an adaptogen. Anybody know what that word is? Okay. So this this is a substance that has the capacity to kind of like turn down what's like overwrought and turn up what's beneficial. Right? If you're too high, it'll like steady it out. If you're too low, it'll give you some energy. And in the case of how mindfulness um, supports the opening of qualities of mind or qualities of heart, it has this dual property of increasing the strength of the frequency of the wholesome qualities of mind and weakening the occurrence of and the strength of the suffering states. This one quality does both of these things, which is part of why it's so central. So this results in a reduction of immediate as well as longer-term suffering. And you know, if, if you s- stay with this, the understanding that grows in you, not just on an intellectual level, but stemming from this experiential kind of learning that engages all the dimensions of your being, the learning that comes from this, nobody can take away from you because it's yours. You know, you can't unsee it. It's not, you know, just doing something ritualistically. It's, it's a whole system self-education that allows you to um, see through ideas that you've had about how things work and how to relate to things that have caused you to suffer unnecessarily. So a certain kind of way you could say it's almost like uh, um, rebooting your operating system or something. And now it come, now some of the errors that are there are not there anymore because you're not you're not mistaking as often what's suffering what isn't suffering and you you're, can find a wise relationship to what's happening regardless of what it is you're connected enough to recognize what's present when it's there. And you understand you don't double down on suffering. So this is part of the what's going on here with you being here, although (laughs) it may not be what you signed up for. (laughs) But, But this is the bigger picture of what's happening. 
and it explains, uh, you know, ex- explains some things about the meditation instructions and and how they're given and what they mean. That you know, for instance, in insight practice, you know, the teachers aren't up at the the front of the room and going, you know, now just let yourself feel fill with light and you know float up. It's like, no, can you find your body? Can you feel your body? Okay, spend some time with the senses. Be in real time. Notice what they are. You know, if something else arises and becomes predominant, well, you know. Notice that. You could name that. You could look into it, you know, see what it is. That's the, of course, piece of the meditation instruction. Oh, sadness, of course. Or wanting it to be different. Oh, of course. Knee pain, of course. Moving, of course. (laughs) It's okay, too. So, so whatever brought you here was born out of some, some type of compassion, some kind of self-compassion, even if you might not exactly see it that way right now. But it was the result of a lot of wholesomeness that's already within you. So to wind up at a place like this, doing this kind of thing, you already have a lot of wholesome qualities of heart and mind. Right? So you have the capacity to do this kind of investigation and do this kind of uh, development. This word bhavana, who knows that word? few people. Okay, I'm dropping in the poly now. Okay, so bhavana is a word that means development or cultivation. Development or cultivation of the heart-mind in particular. So this it again is a pointing to the fact that this meditation practice is giving you tools that support both your understanding of context and particular instructions about you know how to work with your own mind directly but it's also giving you the suggestion that you can self evolve right what's your own psycho emotional spiritual development is actually within your own hands. So I would say that that's actually pretty important information to have. So this is an onward leading process that has lots of layers. And that's actually a really good thing. Because the benefits of the the path of Dharma practice are sometimes described as being good in the beginning, good in the middle, and good at the end. (laughs) Right? So, as I described my first, first retreat, 
I got some really important things there like in three days with a very angry mind. So imagine you with calm and cool <laughs> minds with filled with friendliness and patience. What may be seen. So of course I'm just kidding you, but So this is uh, my brief, (laughs) spectacular uh, uh, presentation on uh, how this whole system works and why you can't get your money back. May the benefit of the practice that we've done here today be a cause and condition of our own awakening and that of all beings everywhere. <laughs>